All right, let's see. Eased my mind. Yeah. I really thought it was nothing, Stan said. My flirtation, as I called it, was extremely brief, only for a few weeks or so at most. Stan's wife nodded. I had also been smoking a lot of pot at the time, which I hadn't done in recent years at all. But maybe the weed affected my judgment. You know by now, Dr. Gallagher, that I'm a sincere searcher for the truth. But also, I guess, I'd describe myself as someone who's always been hungry for spiritual experience. That's the best way I have of putting it. That made sense to me. As a kind of new age seeker, Stan was in constant search of a concrete experience that would satisfy his spiritual yearning. Many Westerners turn to Eastern religions for that, for what they perceive to be a more direct connection to a spiritual realm. Some of them, unfortunately, flirt with occultism and even diabolic pursuits. By then, I was learning in depth how various elements from a victim's personal history were involved in the genesis of these weird oppressive phenomena. In Maria's troubles, for example, it seemed clear that she was being punished, not because she had engaged with the occult, but because, as such a devout and charitable person, she became a target for demonic foes. As I had learned by this time, oppressive phenomena of beatings and other sorts of physical attacks had been reported throughout history in surprisingly sound documents. And such historical recordings often document that the kind of oppressive assault Maria endured frequently affect fairly saintly individuals in response to their continued devotion to God and their steadfast rejection of Lucifer and his realm. By contrast, Stan had turned to outright diabol- um, Satanism, which instigated his inter- external oppression. He'd been caught in an imprudent bargaining with forces beyond his reckoning, and however he tried to justify his brief lapse in judgment, he was paying a punishing price. I wasn't sure whether the brujo Maria had mentioned had something to do with her condition. Seeing her case in a whole different light from Stan's, some spiritual experts refused to use the word oppression at all in characterizing her suffering. Rather, they prefer a term like a diabolic attack on the holy. But I doubt demons quibble about wording as they ply their mischief. Yankee rationalist that I remained, as well as a train's physician unlikely to jump to a cult hypothesis without a lot of evidence, Maria's theory about a sorcerer putting a curse on her seemed all too crude, too superstitious to me at the time. But later cases where curses and hexes and the like proved all too common parts of the story gave me pause. I was seeing firsthand that occult factors in a person's suffering or healing were by no means the silly or benign phenomena most people suppose. I was reminded of my brother John's contact in France with the good witch who had healed his warts and started to take his experience more seriously. As Stan's Stan's story illustrates, a person who starts to follow Satan 
but later tries to turn away may be especially vulnerable to evil spirits or an individual who seriously dabbles in the occult and opens a door, as it is put, but then attempts to reform his or her life and return to the serious religious practices. Later organized crime figures, once person, sorry, like organized crime figures, once a person pledges to the group and knows the players, the organization hardly wants to let that person leave without exacting its revenge. Such people, quote, know too much, end quote. Later, I met another person who had turned naively but seriously to occult pursuits. A psychologist I knew had examined a woman around 50 years of age who seemed to be suffering serious oppressive symptoms. According to Father Jacques, the troubled woman had extensive past experiences with the occult. Originally from India, she had immigrated to the United States where she became a citizen and successful businesswoman. But then she began to experience all sorts of strange and painful paranormal experiences. Hinduism is the major religion in most of India, and most Hindus believe in both malign and beneficent deities. This woman had been, been a student of what's known as Kundalini Awakenings, which are generally described as experiences that range from feeling a cool breeze or heat to spasms at the base of the spine, visions, alternate states of consciousness, and adherence claim possible, quote, enlightenment, end quote. To understand and best assist some of the cases Father Jacques was introducing me to, I needed a fuller knowledge of each person's underlying beliefs. Before my visit with the Indian woman, I read as much as I could about the phenomena of Kundalini, of Kundalini awakenings. To my surprise, there was a large amount of research literature on the topic, however controversial. The Sanskrit word kundalini means coiled snake, and the term refers to what is called divine energy in Sanskrit shakti, which is believed to be located at the base of the human spine. The concept is also identified with a serpent goddess, and students such as Carl Jung, and Joseph Campbell were intrigued by its symbolism and its original spiritual significance. Prominent among the four major schools of yoga, Kundalini Yoga has centers around the world, including a number in New York City. Many of these centers emphasize their neutral physical practices of breathing, exercising, and meditation, often without any mention of underlying Hindu beliefs. Whatever one makes of these notions, many adherents of Western religions with traditional ideas about evil spirits, have argued that its undoubted paranormal elements, as claimed by those who have undergone these awakenings, have diabolic roots. Predictably, some secular critics have characterized these awakenings as simply nonsense or deluded, an idea hotly denied by traditional Hindus. In any case, this woman had in recent years turned to Catholicism and had become convinced that she had opened herself to demonic forces through her kundalini practices and was seeking relief from her very painful experiences. She wanted deliverance from what she had come to believe were attacks by malign spirits. The core of her complaints, which also entailed a number of odd internal experiences, again mostly consisted of painful physical ones. Though she experienced very real pains, her physicians 
could never discover a medical reason for them. In addition, she also reported occasional unseen blows and several times felt strangled by spirits. Similarly to what Stan had suffered, she felt she was being punished for her past interactions with what she now believed had been malign spirits. Interestingly, she stated that the pains were increasingly torturous when she attended Mass and became unbearable when she neared the Eucharist. In the years since, I have heard many similar complaints from oppressed men and women who experience an increase in pain while in church and especially when close to communion hosts. During, their, during our work with this woman, Father Jacques introduced me to another priest who had been consulted on the case, Father Malachi Martin. Martin was a noted but controversial figure in the religious world for his radical views about old-style Catholicism and the conspiratorial inner workings of the Vatican. Both priests believed this woman was being diabolically attacked, and her psychologist had already assessed her phys- phys- sorry, her psychological state as otherwise normal. Father Jacques wanted me to hear about her Kundalini experiences and to meet the elderly Father Martin, as he was still calling himself, although he had resigned as a Jesuit years earlier. To augment my research, I listened to Father Martin's experience with other demonically possessed individuals. He still had a heavy Irish brogue and seemed a bit of a character, a lively and charming man. He did not have long to live. He died in 1999. Our relationship remained cordial, though I confessed to having a mixed reaction to him and his work. By then, his 1976 book on the subject of possession, Hostage to the Devil, had long since become a bestseller, surpassing even baddies in popularity in the genre. But he had been criticized for taking considerable poetic license in his reporting of possessions. A bit of a Balarney? I was never sure. I've been told on good authority that Martin did not really have much personal experience in the field of exorcism. He called himself an assistant to cases and skirted going through proper channels. Some reviewers thought he perhaps had based his account on a number of real cases that he had heard about and then fashioned into five stereotyped subjects, each proving a general ideological point about the modern world. Some commentators also have argued that he exaggerated the toll taken on the exorcist, overemphasizing the idea of exorcism as a personal duel between demon and priest, rather than a prayer for God's intercession. Perhaps he did this for dramatic effect. Martin is also alleged to have maintained that more than half of psychiatric patients in asylums had been demonically attacked. An unwise judgment, if he indeed held that view. I regret never pinning him down on whether he truly took that position or had ever mentioned that statistic, which Father Jacques and I both regarded as absurd. Whatever liberties Martin may have taken with his reports, he was familiar with many records of the historical practice of exorcism and the long experience of Catholic, and the long experience Catholics have of dramatic possessions and oppressions. And so he, too, genuinely contributed to my early understanding of this odd field. My serious education in the nuances of these matters had clearly begun. As one of the most knowledgeable Catholic exorcists in the United States, Father Jacques was asked to see a large number of people suspected of being diabolically attacked 
all around the country. Our association and prominence in the field soon allowed me a broad exposure to an unusually large number of amazing cases, though the workload often proved a bit onerous as I continued to fulfill my clinical and academic responsibilities. As our collaboration and friendship eventually grew, I regularly accompanied Father Jacques on many trips. During our long car rides, he told me about his background as a priest, delving into his vast store of tales about possessions and other sorts of demonic assault. Catholic bishops in the United States regularly authorized Father Jacques to perform exorcisms, so they clearly respected my friend's judgment and discretion. In the years since, the U.S. Catholic Church has appointed more exorcists, which is why this generation of exorcists doesn't encounter anywhere near the number of cases that Father Jacques, and eventually I, routinely saw. At the time, I hadn't understood Jacques' prominence in the field and hence his involvement in cases all across the country. I hadn't realized how often Jacques would be calling me to ask for my opinion. So I soon had to make some hard choices. I wanted to help Father Jacques and the people he was sending my way. They were confused, often tortured individuals. Even if psychiatrically troubled, as some turned out to be, I didn't want to ignore their their pain. If nothing else, I knew I could generally help them sort out the more precise nature of their difficulties, whether psychiatric, medical, or demonic, and secure the kind of help they so desperately needed. I also had to admit that the field intrigued me. These were certainly not the sorts of cases I had heard about in medical school. Was I going to commit to this strange new endeavor? As a rough rule, I decided that I'd try to do my best to help out whenever I was asked. Since I hadn't gone out of my way to seek out this field, I trusted that events would help dictate my level of participation, which allowed me to think of my involvement as, in a way, providential. But I wasn't prepared for the next case Father Jacques literally brought to my door.